Hello and welcome to Suede. This is Sarah Osteen and I am looking forward to having a conversation today with Dr. Rachel Barbanel Freed. Uh, otherwise known as Dr. RBF, who is a clinical psychologist and optimal performance consultant in the Newton Center area of Massachusetts, down the street from where I grew up. And we're going to be talking today about the, the influence on families and what we can do as individuals to perhaps make the uh, the dynamics in our family easier, or at least that's what I'm thinking what we're going to talk about today, but it may take another path. <laughs> so thanks. Rachel, thanks so much for being here. <laughs> I'm so pleased to be here to talk to you. Would you mind just giving me a little bit more insight to your career focus and the types of clients that you tend to work with most closely? My career focus, I mean, one of the things that I love about the career that I chose is that my, my focus has really changed over the years. Um, I have, I was, I have a lot of experience. I was trained to work with kids and adolescents. That's really what brought me to psychology. Um, and I do work with individuals, couples and families and organizations, um, both on an individual and group level. And that's what, um, I'm mostly interested in now is really working with groups and groups can mean couples, families, organizations. Um, it means individuals who are, you know, inside of an organization. And I work really with anyone who's looking to make change, right? Because people come to me because something isn't working well. Um, and people come to me when they're at the point where they realize that they are the, the person that's responsible for making the change. And so, that's really like the sweet spot of um, what I do is kind of figuring out how to help people look inward so that they can figure out what change they need to make. That's amazing. And so just speaking of change, what, uh, what caused you to sort of migrate from working with teenagers specifically to working more closely with groups? Well, my work with teenagers came out of working with groups, in fact. So I did a lot of youth work um, before I went back to get my doctorate. Um, so I did a lot of, you know, teen work, camps, schools, and I um, realized that I I liked – the reason I decided to become a psychologist because I liked working with all the kids that no one else liked working with. So we'd be yes. in these like like large groups of people and the kid that was a, sort of on the outs, I was the one who was always sitting on the, you know, sitting in the corner or on the curb talking to them. Um, and so originally what I wanted to do was run a school for kids who had been in and out of um, – you know, jail, like adjudicated youth, because I felt like, you know, we need to figure out a systems approach to help these folks. Um, And then I actually did a lot of work in public schools and with kids who were in special ed schools and special ed situations. And after a while, I actually just got burned out um, because the system is a hard one to be in. And then once I um, sort of had kids of my own, the hours that kids, you know, adolescents need to be seen in a clinical practice are the same hours that my own kids need me. Um, And so that's why, again, you know, sort of shifting from working with individuals, I've kind of gone back 
out to a sort of larger group focus where I can, again, work with schools as, you know, on a consultant basis or work with organizations on how do you kind of, as an individual, help the group and how does the group help the individual? Do you have teenagers of your own? Not, not yet. I have one that's on the cusp. Yeah. Okay. Well, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how you react around the Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's great. So I know that a lot of your focus and work has been around reflection and meditation. And in fact, you've done some work with uh, Dr. Sarah Sarkis, who I went to college with and, and interviewed on this podcast earlier. How has that become part of your your focus? How did you kind of get into that world? How did I get into the world of... Well, yeah, we can reframe that. I mean, I, I know that that's become an important part of your work, uh-huh. your uh-huh. retreats on the concept of reflection. And yes, tell me so, that I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I guess I just I wouldn't I wouldn't say reflection so much. Okay. Um, that's probably not the. I guess that's the word that I got hung up on. Um, sure. Again, I was working. This was once I was in grad school. I was working with you know these kids who were in and out of. Um, jail, who are in and out of foster care, who are really having a tough life. Um, And they all wanted to be, you know, somebody famous, like the kids I was talking to. They wanted to be singers or rap stars, or they wanted to be, um, you know, involved in sports in some way. Um, And they were folks that tended to get into fights, and the fights had really, you know, negative... um, ramifications for them. And so I started talking with these kids about how do we use our breath in order to calm our central nervous system. And my in was really on, you know, like, well, all these singers, all these athletes, they need really strong breath control, right? But the added benefit was that if you want to get yourself out of a bad situation, you need to be able to breathe because if you can't breathe, you can't think. If you're in a fight or flight response, you're just going to react. And my work with these kids was really trying to figure out how to help them um, with that space between stimulus and response. Um, And so I did um, I did a couple yoga teacher trainings. I trained with John Kabat-Zinn and a bunch of um, uh, really – you know, well-known meditation teachers. And then I just found that this is really both personally and certainly in my work, what is the, I don't know, the most important thing for change, but it's up there. Yeah. And why is that so particularly challenging for, for that teenager population? Um, well, because teenagers tend to be very um, movement focused, right? So they are sort of, con- they don't have a whole lot of um, develop development in their frontal lobe. So they're not really um, great at executive functioning. They're not good at planning. They're not good at like seeing different perspectives. They're very reactive. Um, but and, and and that's true of all of us, unless we learn the skill of learning how to be able to take a breath 
or be able to take a different kind of perspective, we're all pretty lousy at it and we're pretty reactive. Yeah, I would agree. And so, you know, we we certainly hear about the importance of, of breath and slowing down the, the nervous system, but is there, is there another sort of, are there other biological or chemical reasons why it's so important that are kind of not as obvious? If we're talking about the fight or flight response, right, that's when you get um, a surge of adrenaline, you get your cortisol is pumping, right? And, Mm -hmm. and once you're in that kind of biological response, it is really hard to come back down from that. And if we think about, you know, historically, there's, we are animals, right? We're, we're meant to be able to respond to dangers around us. So there's a, there's a real reason why when something's chasing you, when you have like this surge of fear that there's that response in your body. The problem is that we now respond to that. Like that's the response that we get when we're sitting in traffic, when we're looking at emails, when we come home and there's a mess in the house um, or whatever it is. And there's all sorts of sorts of health implications um, from having um, a sustained level, high levels of cortisol, sustained adrenaline. You get sick more often. Um, the, The more triggered your amygdala is, which is a part of your brain, which gets triggered when, um, you're in a fight or flight response, the more triggered you are, the more likely you are to get triggered again. So likewise, if you are able to calm yourself, you're more likely to kind of be able to stay in that calmer space. So just so I mentioned the the part about being triggered again. So does that mean that if you allow yourself or if you are triggered, that means you are more susceptible to being triggered again? Yeah. I mean, over time, we definitely see that, right? So for instance, um, you know, everybody has insomnia Mm -hmm. every once in a while, right? But people, it's terrible, right? But if you have chronic insomnia, part of what happens is because you've had the, the, the response, you're much more likely to have the response again. So our bodies kind of work in, in this way, um, which is not always helpful. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that's how anxieties and phobias also grow. Like, you've taught yourself that this situation is a catastrophe. A hundred percent. And then when you are are in it again, that's what you've learned. And anxiety at its base is actually helpful, right? We need anxiety. First, um, anxiety is actually catching right? We are pack animals. And if there's a whole, you know, if there's a whole group of us that are being chased um, and one person doesn't feel the anxiety, that's the, that's the guy that's going to get eaten. Right. (laughs) So, so on some level, anxiety is really helpful, but you need to have the right amount of anxiety for the particular task. Right. So something that's super complicated, right. Um, You know, a surgeon, right. Who's going into, do a complicated surgery has to have a much lower level of anxiety in order to operate. If you don't have any anxiety, you're not going to get up off the couch. And so learning how to modulate that and moderate it is really important. Um, 
you know, part of what I what I always think about is the the strongest things are usually the most flexible. And that same thing is true for us. It's true for our mental health. We benefit from elasticity. And working with breath, working with meditation, working with the ability to be able to sit with your pain or your anxiety or whatever it is that's uncomfortable enables us to be able to have another option. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does. I guess I'm um, I'm sort of sitting here wondering, and I don't want to take this in a different direction, but how much of this or do we know is a genetic component around fight or flight? So it's super complicated because oh. the question is with genes – you know, we're set with a certain number of genes, but part of the question is what genes get turned on or turned off, right? Mm-hmm. So it's that nature versus nurture. We, um, for instance, um, you know, we know that there is a um, generational transmission of trauma, but we don't know yet actually at the gene level, at the genetic level, if it's like there's truly a gene for it or because of the behaviors that we have seen growing up in that situation, that that is what got turned on. It's so interesting. I just reflecting on my husband got had surgery a few years ago, like a outpatient surgery, and uh, he had a rough time coming out of the anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And he's a big guy. He's like 6'3 and big. And mm-hmm. the nurse... He he kept kind of they called it the fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Um, like he kept kind of being okay, and then he'd feel terrible, and it was I, you could tell they were trying to move him out of the bed, but we mm-hmm. couldn't get him out of there. And then a couple nurses commented they were like, "God, the bigger they come, the harder they fall." Like mm-hmm. that, that it was that there was some at least in their experience that there was some common scenario that larger be larger men sometimes had more of this fight or flight. Um, response in that situation. I have no idea if that's true or not. I mean, I don't know about, I don't know about that in particular either. I know that, um, people have really weird responses to, um, to anesthesia. You know, I know that redheads respond differently to anesthesia. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, I think, um, you know, both your physical piece and also, I don't know how much is your mental, right. Your history. You know, mm-hmm. I have no idea. It, it's so interesting. So, so all of this <clears throat> study has uh, around breath mm-hmm. uh, and being able to slow your nervous system down um, has led you to really focusing on how that can impact change. Is that is that mm-hmm. fair? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, where does that leave you today? How is this impacting your practice? You know, like I said, everybody comes to me because they want to change, either because the system itself is not working, whether it's a family or whether an organization, right, or because something isn't working sort of in an individual's life in a particular way. And we all come by our ways of operating in the world honestly. We've all learned how to respond to things, right? And often 
that's what sort of, you know, the thing that got us where we are is not the thing that works once we're there. But in order to figure that out, you've got to be able to sit still long enough to figure out what it is that's actually not working. It's so hard. (laughs) So hard. It's so hard. It is so hard. The hardest thing for sure. Right. But you can't heal what you can't feel. So you have to be able to allow yourself to figure out how to sit with a feeling. And so many of us, most of us are taught somehow or learned somehow that um, feelings should should sort of match logic, but feelings have nothing to do with logic. Feelings just are, and they are ethically neutral, but you have to figure out how to respond to them in a way that's going to help you get where you want to go. So, yeah, it's so impactful to to think about all what that means for Everybody, as an individual, I'm sure everybody mm-hmm. who's listening to this is sort of reflecting on their own life. Uh, so, with the you know the work that you do with families, uh, how does this concept play into the the work that you do with families? And I'm asking this because I'm particularly interested in, in influence and power, and I'm I'm wondering how this connects to parents' opportunities to influence their own behavior and hopefully improve relationships with families. How, how does, how do you see this playing out? Um, anybody well, how who, do you work with people, I guess I should yeah, say. Well, so, right. So, you know, anybody who's seen me um, clinically or seen me um, at a workshop or any of my, you know, people who talk to me will tell you that um, I think parenting is probably up there with like the most triggering of events, right? It is hugely difficult for all of us at different times, right? Being a parent has a huge influence over us. I mean, becoming a mother has been both the the most, left me the most vulnerable and also enabled me to feel the most powerful of anything that I've done in my life, right? And both of those things exist simultaneously inside of, inside of me. Um, and we influence our kids constantly. The question isn't whether or not you're going to influence your kid. The question is whether you're influencing them consciously or unconsciously. And just to go back to the idea that parenting is the most triggering concept, I, I, can totally agree with that. And it's triggering, what do you see? It's, it's triggering your identity or it's triggering your childhood. All of the things. So if there's yeah. anything that you haven't worked out from your childhood, which we all have things like we haven't yeah. worked out, right? Um, that's going to come up. Um, so if you, if you have a complicated relationship with your, with one of your parents, that's going to be played out somehow in your relationship with your children. Even if you have a great relationship with your parents, the complicated pieces are still going to get played out. It just is the way that humans work. Um, And, you know, we all have fantasies about, you know, dreams about what it's going to be like to be a parent um, or what it means to be a parent or what, you know, our child's success means. 
for us as a parent. And you've, you've got to be aware of where your stuff starts and where your kid's stuff begins. If you, if you want to parent consciously so that you're not just like repeating all the stuff that like you swore you'd never do, right? We've all had that moment where we're like, oh my God, I just channeled my mother or father. I swore I would never say that and I did, right? Um, if, you, if you don't want to do that, you have to become aware of your own blind spots. And the only way that I know how to help people really do that on a day in and day out basis so that you can do it, you know, not just in my office, but also, you know, when you're standing at the kitchen table and there's chaos and you're feeling super stressed, the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you can figure out how to actually slow down long enough to pay attention to what's happening inside of you. It's also, it's funny to me that I think we have an assumption that anything bad that we experienced as children or things we disliked about our parents that we will somehow we are more inclined to not do it (laughs) right like oh I I had this my parents treated me this way or something like that and so therefore I would never do that to my kids and that you're somehow predisposed to to not do it but it's almost the reverse right you're you're, 100% because we learn to love the way we were loved. And so unless you're really clear about what it was even about the thing that you don't, that you don't like, that you didn't like, you're, even if you're not doing the exact same thing, you're gonna, you're gonna repeat it, right? So my mother is a wonderful person. She has many great attributes, but like she never knew, she never, she doesn't remember any of the things like, when did I walk or when did I get my first tooth, right? Or any of those like milestones. And it drove me batty, right? I was like, must mean she doesn't care about me, you know? And I swore to myself, right? I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to take notes. I'm going to remember. I'm going to do a baby. Yeah. No, no, no. I have no idea. I have no idea about any of those things, right? And, And now I sort of have, you know, more appreciation of why that is less important, but I, I see it with my kids. They're frustrated, right? Like I can't even tell them apart in the picture sometimes. So <laughs> doesn't mean I don't love them. Right? right. But that's just a sort of, you know, one example. Yeah, no, that's funny. That's and <clears throat> so true. I think we all can think of examples, you know, where <clears throat> that's how we learned, like you said, that's how we learned to love. <clears throat> so it becomes part of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you, break the cycle. (laughs) So I think the only way really is to figure out what it is inside of you, right? You have to be aware of your own stuff. Every feeling has a beginning, a middle, and an end if we let ourselves feel the feelings. But most of us, if we're sort of in a difficult or confusing feeling, right, we kind of try to push it away or ignore it, right? And then we can't respond differently. Then we get stuck, right? So you have to figure out how to welcome um, the struggle as an opportunity for learning, right? Which means, um, you know, for me, right, it means sometimes I literally am like, I got, I got to go, right? So I have to like make sure that my kids are, you know, okay, they're safe. And then I 
go into my closet, right? I take some space. I figure out like, because it's usually there's usually multiple things are coming at us at once. And that's when we're overwhelmed. That's when we're not responding in the way that we would like to be responding. That's when we're just kind of reacting from whatever feels uncomfortable. And so you have to learn how to change that when it's not in the thick of things, right? And that's when, um, that's where like, you know, whether it's therapy or meditation or um, journaling or, you know, going to a parenting class or whatever it is, that's when you learn how to practice it kind of away from that really heightened moment. So do some feelings have shorter beginning, middles and ends or others longer? Is that part of the learning process? Yeah, for sure. Right. Some things stay with you longer. I think probably it also depends on who you are. Um, You know, I have one kid who just wakes up happy. Like, doesn't matter what happened the day before. He just like, he just wakes up happy. And that's just the way he was born. Right. Because I have another kid who like morning is just he's just still stuck in the day before. Yeah. Right. And so there's a individual piece to it. Right. Um, You know, probably the level of trauma, right. When we're responding to something that really hits something deep, that's going to take longer to unpack. So it's certainly like over time and individual, you know, differences make, make an impact. Yeah. So is that part of the sitting with it and trying to understand it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. And it's so, and I'm just thinking about, you know, I'm not painting a very good picture of my husband, Matt, mm-hmm. today, but I, you know, I tend to have a strong feeling about something and then I move on quite quickly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've always been that way. And mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just a lot harder for him. So if we have sort of a tense interaction in the morning, <clears throat> he may come home that night still feeling it. Whereas like, I've already forgotten about it and I'm kind of, kind of annoyed. Like, wait, why are you still acting this way? Like, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, like, and uh, <clears throat> it's just interesting to see how the same interaction can have a very different response with people. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um you know, and I think when I work with couples, right, um, part of what happens in a couple is like it's really uncomfortable when the person that you've partnered with responds differently, right? Because mostly we pick people because we think, oh, like we're pretty, we're pretty similar. Like this is going to work. It feels good together. But when we have different different emotional responses, sometimes it feels really uncomfortable. Um, and so part of that is also then learning, right. How, how do you respond to that discomfort? It's not just about getting them to change. (laughs) Right. Right. It is actually not at all about getting them to change. It is. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, you know, and this is, you know, super easy for me to say, right. When I'm sitting in my office and talking to people or talking to you, but like, there are definitely times where my husband says, 
you're a couples therapist because <laughs> I get yeah. pulled into the same stuff, right? I have, I step into the same pile of crap from my own history. Um, you know, like it can't be helped. That's just the way we're wired. Um, so the sort of best case scenario is you learn enough about yourself to kind of say, you know, all right, I can't talk about this right now, or I need to go do something to regroup or like, let's come back at a different time. So uh, what do those, what is the process with you for helping families do that exploration, particularly as it relates to kind of sitting with the discomfort? Um, I pretty much suggest that everybody dabbles in some sort of meditation practice, um, Mm -hmm. I work with people both around um, meditating or breath work in the actual session, but really what we do is people fight in front of me and, you know, they, they, and I, and I help them actually slow it down so that we can talk about what's happening and what are the feelings that are happening in the moment and can we figure out how to, shift perspective? Can we figure out how to change something in the interaction so it doesn't feel so quite so awful? Yeah. Um, I feel like people are always dying to know this. Do you, <laughs> this yeah. really dumb question, but do you ever, like, are you ever there and you feel like one person is really being a jerk? Uh-huh. And I and- have told people, you're just being a jerk. Like, yeah. what's that about, right? Like, and then usually what we find is that there's some pattern in their family where that's what they, that's how they learned, right? Because, um, so <laughs> here's an example. Um, my family of origin, right? Everybody's always kind of yelling and talking over one another. I like family and, like that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Um, and my mother sort of makes a joke and she says, you know, well, if I'm not interrupting, how do you know I'm paying attention? Right. That is not the way that my husband's family works. It's been um, it's been a a source of um, stress for us at times. Right. We've had to figure out like, okay, I need to you know, I need to I need to be a little bit more flexible and he needs to be a little bit more flexible. Um, But certainly there are times when people are just not being nice. And, you know, I'm pretty. I'm from New York, right? I live in Boston. Like, I'm pretty upfront, you know? So that either works for folks or it doesn't. Yeah. Um, But I, yeah, for sure that happens. I I, I like that. So are are children open to meditation practices? And does that that look different with them? Um, So the kids that I work with in the families or in the schools that I've worked with, they seem to be pretty open. My kids are not open to it. Right. Okay. Like they're like, oh, mom, really? Um, but I think probably, um, you know, it's going to depend a lot also on what the family constellation is like. Like I do have a, a couple of families that I have worked with where they meditate together. And that's really helpful. It's particularly helpful for kids who are non-neurotypically developing because they need to learn the skill of how to be aware of what's happening inside of them if we want to, you know, enable them to be able to change their behavior. So what are, what are some examples of 
behavioral changes that a, a non-neurotypical kid is able to make? <clears throat> um, so um, being aware of the fact that they're feeling overwhelmed instead of just feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. Right. So that's a big one. Um, being aware that like I need, you know, being able to raise your hand and say, I need to take a minute to walk outside of the classroom rather than just bolting. And it feels like schools are more open to that. I mean, obviously not all schools, but as a parent of a child heading into elementary school, I feel like the schools that I talked with are, that I speak with are recognize that kids have different reactions and sometimes Mm -hmm. they need to move around or wiggle in their seat or whatever it might be. Um, are you seeing that as well? Yeah, I think it, it, you know, probably depends a lot on what school district you're in. It probably depends on the teacher. Um, you know, a good teacher is a gift, right? And the best teachers are the teachers that can really see a kid as a whole person, right? Not just as like, I need to cram these details of information into their brains, yeah. Uh, and there's even some schools that are incorporating meditation practices in or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went to the the Middlesex school for high school and I know that that's become part of the curriculum, I think actually is like a meditation practice. What can the sort of average person who's listening to this, what can they do on a day-to-day basis to influence their behavior? Uh, maybe calm the amygdala or manage things more effectively so that they're not having those fight or flight reactions. I don't know that we can not have the fight or flight reactions. Exactly. (laughs) Um, You know, I was aware, right? Like I was excited to talk to you, but I also was aware that I was a little anxious, right? I was a little nervous. So in that moment, I, I know what works for me, right? A walk, it's really sunny here today. Um, So like a walk outside for five minutes, you know, changing my breath um, to accentuate the exhale. So a really simple practice is um, if you count your breaths and you concentrate on the exhalation part of the breath, that will um, automatically engage your relaxation response. Because when we're really nervous, we are breathing shifts, right? So that's one very, like, very specific thing you can do if you're already feeling anxious. Um, but, you know, if you really want to make change in your life, um, you have to figure out how to sit still, you know, that can be therapy, it can be meditation, it can be um, journaling, it can be a bunch of different things, but it, you have to learn how to sit still. Because if you want to change something, you have to actually know what it is you want to change. And you won't actually know that, like, what is it that you, yourself, deep down inside want to change versus like, what is a change being put upon you? from some external force. And the only way to really do that is to sit still, right? The magic is in, is in the struggle. And it's only when we're sitting in that, that we can actually work to figure out like, okay, this is the change. So this is how I'm going to do it. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'm just sort of thinking about it from the perspective of a parent and, you know, we want to protect our kids from pain. And I'm wondering if there's almost a... Yeah. You're less inclined to pursue activities like this because you know it's going to be hard. Yeah. I mean, that is, I think, the most painful part of parenting is that I, certainly for me, right, I can't, I can't protect my kids from life, right? I want them to go out and live life. And that means they have to experience all the things, mm-hmm. right? So the most that I can hope for is um, to give them the kind of stable sense of self that they know, you know, first of all, if they mess up and they make a bad decision that I'm not going to be punitive, that like I'm here to help them, but also that they have enough sense of self that they recognize that like, you know, this is not the end all be all, that there's another experience, another feeling, another breath coming down the pike. Yeah. And as a parent, you have to is it model that or encourage that? How do you create that environment? I think both. I think modeling is definitely the most effective, right? Where, um, you know, I try to talk with my kids about, you know, about my own disappointments in sort of, or my own anxieties in, in, in the ways that they can, that they can relate to. Right. So like my, my two-year-old is going to um, get a different answer from me than my seven-year-old or my 10-year-old, right? Because they just are different different developmental stages and I can't respond, even though they can't understand the same response, even though they might, they all have the same feeling. Yeah. So, so recognizing those different and understanding those differences is the work of the parent. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, so, you know, my four, when one of my kids, uh, I think it was my oldest kid when he was four, you know, he was really mad because I wouldn't let him um, use a knife to like, you know, cut something. And, you know, he was screaming at me like, you know, I hate you. You're the worst mother ever. Right. And it didn't feel great in that moment, no. you know, but I said to him, I was like, I, I, I get it that you hate me. I get it that you're really angry. I still love you. Even when you're angry at me, I still love you. Yeah. Right? Because, like, I can't make him feel differently, and I'm not going to give him the knife back, right? Because that's not safe, right? So, right. But there's like, another, just, all right, there's another response. There are common response there, which would have been to be angry with the kid, to escalate it. There, for sure that. Um, the other thing that I hear a lot of um, – in my office is when people hear that from the kids, they feel a lot of shame, right? Like I'm, I must, it must actually be true that I'm the worst parent ever. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so, you know, that again, it's like, that's your, you have to work on your response. Uh, So so if they are feeling all that that shame, what did they say to the kid? Um, Either they respond with anger. Yeah. Right. Um, Like, you know, sort of deflecting it, you're the worst, right? You, you have no idea how good you've got it, whatever. Or they back off from whatever boundary they set, 
right? I don't want you to hate me. I don't want to, I don't want you to feel these uncomfortable feelings and I don't want to feel the uncomfortable feelings. So I'm just going to, you know, so what enabled you to get to the point where you're able to say, you know, I I still love you, even if you're angry and I, I understand how you're feeling. How did you get to that point? Uh, a lot of therapy <laughs> and um, a lot of meditating and a lot of yoga and a lot of reading and a lot of talking to people. You know, um, I rely on my friends a lot, my social, you know, my social circle to say like, oh, you know, is this, is this what your 10 year old's dealing with? How did you deal with this with, you know, when your kid was four? Rachel, this is incredibly fascinating. I'd love to continue this conversation, uh, but I want to be respectful of your time as well. Uh, is there Are there any uh, retreats coming up that people should know about? I think you'd mentioned something this spring, um, and I wanted to let people know about that. Uh, in the late spring, so like very beginning of June, um, I'm going to be at Canyon Ranch talking about this topic, in fact, talking about how stillness creates change. Very cool. And, is, and that's open to everybody? It's open to anybody who wants to come. Yep. Um, so um, it's the Canyon Ranch in Tucson. Um, Sarah Sarkis, who you mentioned earlier, she and I did this together last year, and we've been invited back. And it's um, a really great opportunity to really delve into this topic um, on a much deeper level. And I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, it sounds awesome. Well, people can learn more about you at drrbf.com. I'll put the the link in the details. But I just wanted to say thank you so much. Also, thank you for sharing examples from your own family. I think that just makes it so much more meaningful and easier for me to understand. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you. It's been really fun to to talk about this. You ask great questions. And um, I also, I would love to just sit and chat with you for a while. It's like really fun. So thanks so much for having me. Thank you. 